0: For the reading of God's word. And I'm going to be reading Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have ta- uh, Bibles on the table between here and the lobby in English and, and in Spanish. That's a gift for you if you'd like one. Uh, but feel free to follow along. Hear the word of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus... in all. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, by way of uh, sort of introducing myself to you a little bit, for those of you who don't uh, know me, I wanted to get started this morning by telling you the story of how I came to faith in Rivian. And it's not so much a story as it is a YouTube video. So let's watch that. come on, (laughs) come on. How can you watch that video and not want to buy that truck, right? Should we watch it again? No, no, we'll just watch it once. I don't think it's possible to watch that video and not want to buy that truck, at least not for me. It's not possible to watch that video and not want to buy that truck, but it's also not at all a good idea to buy that truck because of that video. The right way to choose a truck ...is to do something like go to consumer reports. There's a guy, for example, named Sandy Sandy Monroe. uh, And this guy has some level of automotive expertise. Apparently that's his background. He was involved in manufacturing uh, vehicles for a long time. And now he runs this consultancy business. And what they do is they buy cars and disassemble them... ...and write these reports about their quality. How could the manufacturing be improved? Where have corners been cut? Is there sort of really good quality behind the scenes... And Sandy and his team are pretty thorough. Uh, This particular piece of data comes from Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt. But apparently, in 2015, which I think was early on when he started this business, Sandy and his team spent $2.1 million disassembling a BMW i3 and wrote a 23,793-page report. Wow. That is a thorough disassembly. Now, do you need to read a 23,793-page report before you you buy a car? No, I don't think so. But is it a decently good idea to watch one or two of Sandy's 15-minute videos on YouTube before you shell out $85,000 for a Rivian truck? Yeah, probably not a bad idea. And while a shrewd consumer will turn to reviews, that's not often the way the car buying process begins we often see an ad or a car rolling down the street or something new in a neighbor's driveway something that catches our eye and we say to ourselves or at least i say to myself i like that wonder if it's any good and at the risk of making the most relationally damaging sermon transition of all time my wife's not here yet We often, though not always, follow a similar order of operations when we make decisions even more important than buying a new truck. We follow a surprisingly similar pattern when we do things like finding a spouse. We don't come to know people well and then decide if we are attracted to them or not. We at least often find ourselves attracted to a person... Make some initial connection with them, and then in time, we get to know them well. Buying a Rivian might be a good thing to do, but you shouldn't buy a Rivian because of a 30-second tank-turn video. You need to know more. Marrying a girl you just met on the first day of chemistry your sophomore year of college might be a good thing to do, but you shouldn't get married just because you found yourself attracted to her on the first day of class. You need to know more. I want to say that there's nothing wrong with being drawn to a car you know very little about. And there's nothing wrong with finding yourself attracted to someone you know very little about. But what matters a lot is how you proceed from there. Those initial connections need to be followed with more knowledge if there are going to be connections that are stable and beneficial and lasting. I say all that because our text for this morning starts in a way that upon reflection strikes me as curious. This thing, when I first started to study this text for the purpose of preaching this sermon, really struck me, and it's stuck with me. I I can't shake it, and I think it's important. Look back at Ephesians 1 with me if you've got your Bibles open, or it should be uh, up here on the slide. Starting in verse 15, Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15, Paul says, for this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Here's what I think is curious. This is what struck me, and I haven't been able to shake it. Paul says, because I have heard of your faith, I do not cease to give thanks and pray that God might give you the spirit of wisdom and of knowledge. Don't you think that that should be the other way around? At least it seems that way to me. Because I have heard of your knowledge of God, I pray that you might have faith. Intuitively to me, it seems that knowledge is a precursor to faith. But Paul here says, because I have heard of your faith... I pray that you might have knowledge. Here's what I think Paul is getting at. Saving faith is where the knowledge of God begins, not where it ends. Saving faith is where the knowledge of God begins, not where it ends. Maybe you're tracking with me on this, maybe you're not. Maybe what's intuitive to me may not be intuitive to you. But while the Order of operations here, as Paul lays it out, seems counterintuitive to me at least. I think it squares well with our lived experience. For those of you who are Christians, think back to the time of your conversion. How much did you know about God at that moment or in that season? How much did you know about Jesus or about the Bible? Certainly some. There was something that, by God's grace, drew you to Jesus. But my guess is that you didn't have the finer points of your theology sorted out before you converted. Instead, by God's grace, you came to some foundational understanding of the gospel. You place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for new life. But this certainly is not where your knowledge of God is meant to end. This is just the beginning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is vital and foundational for our spiritual life and health. Later in this book, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul will say that the church is built on a foundation and that Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Elsewhere, in 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And this sort of structural analogy runs throughout Scripture. It's not just something that Paul talks about, but going all the way back to some of the Messianic prophecies and through the New Testament, the Bible uses this sort of structural analogy. So I want to talk for a minute about foundations. In 2005, a huge new skyscraper was proposed to be built in Chicago. Uh, I was in college at the time, and just sort of by like a weird happenstance, most of my friends in college were architects, they were were architecture students. And so when this big new building was proposed, they became aware of it, and so I became aware of it. This building was designed by famous architect Santiago Calatrava. Now, I knew nothing about who he was before this time, but I've since become aware of him. Maybe you know of him, maybe you don't, but he's a world-famous architect. Not only that, this building was designed by Santiago Calatrava. It was going to be built right downtown and was going to be one of the tallest buildings in Chicago and in the world. 150 floors, 2,000 feet, and right where the river meets the lake. Here's a rendering of that building. This is the Chicago Spire. It's uh, big. You'd notice it. Makes a statement. Okay? Now, some of my friends liked this building and some of them didn't. You know, they debated what it would do to the skyline and what sort of architecture they like. I mean, that's what college students do. They're zealous and they argue about architecture, I guess. And as many of you know, just because some renderings are released doesn't mean a building is going to be built. So there was some excitement but also some skepticism about whether or not this building would, in fact, be built. But sure enough, in 2006, the Chicago Planning and Zoning Committees unanimously approved the project and in 2007 construction began but just by saying huge building project and 2007 many of you know already where this is going i'm sure a lot of you know chicago and have been to chicago and have never seen this building and the reason why is because this is as far as the project ever got project was never completed the building was never built they spent nearly a year digging that hole and working on the foundation but that's as far as they got and i'm sure it's a really good hole it's deep like to hold up a big building and at least as of 2021 that hole is still there built in 2007 and still standing or not stand? what's the opposite of standing it's still that still a hole Now, eventually, there was some proposal to build something else on that site, and I have no idea where that project stands. Here's the point. That project, the Chicago Spire, never came to fruition. But the reason why it wasn't completed wasn't because the foundation was not of good quality. It wasn't successful because all they ever built was the foundation. And foundations are meant to be built upon. As we make our way through the book of Ephesians, we are doing so with an awareness of the cultural movement of deconstruction that seems to be swelling in the background. Much of our awareness of this phenomenon, if you are aware of it at all, much of my awareness of it is anecdotal. You know a guy or you know some quote-unquote famous evangelical who posted a video on social media explaining their deconstruction. And while deconstruction itself as a process may or may not be a good thing, and my hunch actually is that deconstruction as a process is a good thing, Reed alluded to this last week, or or at least uh, more than alluded to it, outright said it, and I agree with him. It seems to be the case that the consequence of deconstruction is often deconversion. People deciding to walk away from their faith. And of course, to me, that's tragic. Some some of you are more aware of this deconstruction stuff than others. Some of you perhaps might say you yourself are going through a season of deconstruction right now. And I think what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1 is crucially relevant to this cultural moment. I can't help but wonder, and this is a wonder, it's not a conclusion, this is a genuine wonder, if part of the reason for our cultural moment of deconstruction is a consequence of faith that never really grows in the knowledge of God, of a foundation that is never really built upon. I wonder, and it is genuinely a wonder, if the reason why deconstruction experiences often result in what I consider in what I would consider a negative outcome is not because the process of deconstruction is a, itself a bad thing, but because of the quality of the thing being deconstructed. Now as I say that, I'm aware of the possibility of it coming across as dismissive, and I, I hate that possibility. I don't want to propose an oversimplified explanation. There are a lot of factors involved in some of the deconstruction that is going on now, and the failures and abuses of the church certainly bear some significant responsibility. I don't want to simply dismiss people's real experiences and say something so trite as your faith lacks quality. But at the same time, it seems to me that spiritually plateauing is a real and somewhat common thing. I wonder if too often we settle for Christian enough not long after we come to faith in Christ, not long after the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is laid in our lives, and that in time Christian enough doesn't seem to have the sort of substantial quality we hoped it would. Paul here prays that those who have faith might be given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. That's because saving faith is where the knowledge of God begins, not where it ends. In an important way, it seems, that faith that does not proceed to grow in the knowledge of God into a life lived increasingly according to God's design and intention is a lot like a very, very fine hole in the ground. While Paul isn't using structural language here in Ephesians 1, I think there's significant conceptual similarity between what he's saying here in Ephesians 1 and this structural analogy. Paul says, I, uh, Paul says to the Ephesians, I see that you have faith and so I pray that God might build knowledge on the foundation of that faith. This progression, it seems to me, is vital. Saving faith is where the knowledge of God begins, not where it ends. The second thing I want to draw your attention to this morning is the way in which Paul prays that we should gain this knowledge. Look again with me at Ephesians 1, starting in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. I want you to pay very close attention uh, to what Paul is saying here. Uh, And pay close attention to the way in which Paul prays that we would gain knowledge. It's very easy to interpret pretty much everything I've said already this morning in an awfully graceless, gospel-minimizing, works-righteousness kind of way. When you come to your faith in Jesus Christ, the foundation of the gospel has been laid, and then you better build on it. And if you don't, your faith lacks quality. But look here at what Paul says. Paul does not pray that the Ephesians should strive to gain knowledge. He prays that God might give them knowledge. He prays not that we would open our eyes, but that our eyes would be opened. And so to be clear about what Paul is saying and what I am saying, yes, saving faith is where the knowledge of God begins, not where it ends, but... True knowledge of God is, some, is not something we gain with our effort, but something that is given by God in relationship. True knowledge of God is not something we gain with our effort, but something that is given by God in relationship. Please listen closely here because as it relates to this issue, it's very easy to err on the one hand or on the other. On the one hand, you can very easily make the mistake of understanding all this in a graceless way. You better get busy growing in knowledge. On the other hand, when you hear Paul say, or me say, that it is God who gives knowledge, not us who gain it, you can very easily make the mistake of hearing me say, do nothing. When in fact, Christianity is not a faith where you do nothing, nor is it a faith where you strive to do everything. We who have been saved and adopted into God's family have the responsibility to lean in to relationship with God. And in that relationship, God does the work of transforming us. This is a distinction you are likely well aware of, but it bears repeating. There is a real difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. This summer I read a biography about Daniel Boone. And as a consequence, I came to know a good deal about Daniel Boone. But I don't know Daniel Boone. And when Paul here prays that God might give us knowledge of God, it seems clear to me that Paul is not talking about accumulating more facts, about memorizing data, but that God would give us the gift of knowing him more as we abide in relationship with him. To me, there's no place where this is more clear, uh, clearly and powerfully stated than in Jesus' own words in John 15. John 15, 4 and 5 is probably my favorite passage in Scripture. There's no passage that better sums up what Christianity is in my mind. When I say what Christianity is, I mean, okay, I've come to faith in Jesus, I'm saved, I'm adopted into God's family as His child, now what? What does it mean to be a Christian, to live as a Christian? What do I do now? Just hang out and be a little religious until I go to heaven? As I said, I think Jesus clearly and powerfully gives the answer to those questions in John 15. You're welcome to turn there in your Bibles, or the verse will be uh, projected up here on the screen. John chapter 15, starting in verse 4. John 15, starting in verse 4. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, "'Abide in me, and I in you. "'As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself "'unless it abides in the vine, "'neither can you, unless you abide in me. "'I am the vine, you are the branches. "'Whoever abides in me, and I in him, "'he it is that bears much fruit. "'For apart from me, you can do nothing.'" So, in this passage, Jesus does give us a command, but in my experience, and I teach on this text a lot, people tend to misunderstand what the command in John 15 is. In my experience, people tend to hear Jesus commanding them to bear fruit. This is what people tend to think Jesus means when he tells us to abide. And so they read this passage and come away with the impression that Jesus has commanded them to be fruitful. But if you look closely and carefully, there is no command to be fruitful in this passage. The one and only command in this passage is to abide. Bearing fruit is the consequence of abiding. And that is really good news. The only thing that Jesus commands us to do here in John 15, at least in verses 4 and 5, is to abide, to remain connected. And then he tells us that if we abide, we will bear fruit. Not we might bear fruit, but we will bear fruit, period. That's a promise, not a command. The branch does not decide whether or not it will bear fruit, nor does the branch bear fruit because of its own effort. A branch bears fruit by virtue of its connection to a healthy, life-giving vine, period. Jesus is a healthy, life-giving vine. As Christians, do we have a responsibility to do something? Absolutely. The New Testament is full of commands, and when the New Testament commands us to do something, we should do it. But here... Jesus gives us a command that I think is foundational. Jesus does not say that it's our responsibility to bear fruit. As a matter of fact, he says that apart from him, we cannot bear fruit. Instead, he says it's our responsibility to abide, to remain connected. And it is via that life-giving, growth-producing connection that Jesus produces fruit in our lives to very quickly make this as practical as possible because I could very easily preach an entire secondary sermon on this text. I want to talk practically about what connecting in relationship means. What is a relational connection? And so so far as I'm concerned, the necessary and sufficient conditions for a relationship are three things. Any sort of relationship, a good relationship or a bad one, a work relationship, romantic relationship, friend relationship, they all have three ingredients. Spending time, talking, and listening. That's what constitutes a relationship. And so when we talk about remaining connected to God, I, I'm talking about those three things spending time, talking, and listening. Everywhere you go, there God is with you. Spending time with God is easy, it's just a matter of acknowledging His presence. Conceptually, it's simple. Even though in, in the real world it's difficult, we get distracted and we find ourselves ignoring God everywhere you go there god is with you simply acknowledge his presence talk this is prayer again conceptually simple but imagine if you had a friend with you all day every day and you never spoke to that friend It'd be bizarre now you also wouldn't talk 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 every minute of every day there'd be moments of silence But that sort of ongoing, open-ended conversation that you'd have with a friend is, I think, the sort of conversation with God that Paul has in mind when he says that we should pray without ceasing. Lastly, listening. Spending time talking, listening. God has decided to primarily speak to us by His Word. And so I think this is primarily the way that we listen to God. When we get His Word in our minds and in our hearts, And don't just read it for 10 minutes a day at the beginning of the day, but meditate on it. Ask the Spirit to bring it to our minds throughout the day. Talking to God, listening to God, spending time with God. When Jesus talks about abiding, I think that's really what he means, remaining connected. Paul doesn't pray that we would exert our effort and energy in order to gain the sort of knowledge that he has in mind. Paul prays that God would give us A knowledge of himself that is relational true knowledge of God is not something we gain with our effort but is something that is given to us by God in relationship third I want to draw your attention to three things that Paul hopes we might know as a result of God giving us knowledge Look with me back at the text of Ephesians. I'm going to start reading in verse 16 just so that this makes a little bit of sense. But we're going to focus here on the text starting in the second half of verse 18. That's what should be up on the slide. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. I'll start reading in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you, one, may know what is the hope to which He has called you, two, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and three, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. The first thing that Paul hopes we might know is the hope to which God has called you. We can have great hope in the fact that regardless of the tumultuous events of our lives and our lack of knowledge about where things might go from here, our personal future has been secured by Jesus Christ and the future of this world has been determined by Jesus Christ. He is the victor. There is no doubt about it. You should know that. The second thing that Paul hopes we might know, is the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Interestingly, this phrase is not about our inheritance, but about God's future inheritance. Paul's point here seems to be that we should know that we are precious to God. We, the saints, are what God will inherit. And he considers that inheritance glorious and rich. These first two things Paul covers in a phrase a small portion of verse 18. Interestingly enough, sort of just like last week, our entire passage for this week, verses 15 through 23, is just one sentence in Greek. And the first two things that Paul prays that the Ephesians might know are significant but small phrases in that sentence. But the final sort of knowledge that Paul prays for, that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, gets significant emphasis. More than half of this passage, essentially verses 19 through 23, is devoted to Paul's explanation of this power that God works towards us. This power is where Paul places his emphasis, and so that's where I'll place mine. Saving faith is where the knowledge of God begins, not where it ends. True knowledge of God is not something we gain with our effort, it's something that is given to us by God in relationship. And while the knowledge of God's power is not the only knowledge we should gain, there is perhaps no knowledge more important for the Christian than the knowledge of God's power for those who believe. There is perhaps no knowledge more important for the Christian than the knowledge of God's power towards those who believe. There are some carefully chosen words there, so hear me out. First, I want to make clear that this is perhaps the most important knowledge we have. This is where Paul places his emphasis here in Ephesians 1, but it's not obvious to me that the New Testament as a whole clearly teaches that this is the most important thing for Christians to know, period. So, perhaps. Second, I am not suggesting that this is the most important knowledge, period. This is perhaps the most important knowledge for Christians, I think the gospel is probably the most important knowledge, period. Now, maybe you could argue that the, uh, the knowledge of God's power is the knowledge of the gospel, and maybe you think this is a clarification and a distinction not worth making. Uh, sorry, this is just how my brain works. Pray for my wife. In any event, Paul is talking to those who already have faith, and he is talking to them about the knowledge of the power of God towards those who believe. So to be clear, I am saying that that is the most important knowledge for Christians. I'd love to talk to you after the service if you'd like to talk to me, but I don't really want to have any debates about what the most important sort of knowledge is, so hopefully I've sufficiently hedged here to head any of that off. All that being said, as we consider this third point, I want to look at two things. What sort of power we're talking about and how we gain knowledge of power. What sort of power are we talking about? Paul is specifically talking about the power of God that, re, that raised Jesus from the grave and not barely, but triumphantly. Look at Ephesians one nineteen through 23. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places... Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him his head over all. Thi- and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is God's power that accomplishes those things. And it is that power, the power that triumphantly and gloriously raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the Father, now and forevermore, that power God works towards us. What a vital thing to know. But how do we gain knowledge of power? I can tell you about power, but it seems to me that power is really uniquely something we come to know through experience. I'm a millennial, sorry, which means, amongst other things, I'm really good at spending my parents' money. So probably five to seven years ago, I started trying to convince my dad to buy a Tesla, because I'm not going to buy a Tesla, but maybe my dad will. So I'm badgering and badgering and badgering, and yeah, 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 he's sick of hearing it. And then finally, three, four years in this process, I finally wear him down. He tells me, you know what, Tim, I think that I might want to buy a Tesla. I go, great, and you know, he doesn't really follow up, he doesn't really follow up, and so we're back in March of 2021 for spring break, Uh, I'm from Chicago, originally, my parents still live in Chicago, and we're going to visit my dad on like a Wednesday, I think it is, and on Tuesday, I come up with this great idea, what if I schedule a test drive and me and my dad go test drive a Tesla Model Y tomorrow, so I call my dad, dad, hey Tim, you want to go drive a Tesla tomorrow? Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's, that's, that's fine. Yeah, if you want to set up, that's fine. I go, dad, you sound excited. He goes, well, you know, you're kind of springing this on me. I don't know that I want to do it last minute. I go, no, 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 it'll be, it'll be fun. You know, he goes, okay, yeah, fine, set it up. So I set it up and we go to the, the uh, Tesla dealership, not dealership the next day. And he's kind of like lukewarm about this whole thing. And we get the spiel about the Tesla Model Y and they give us one. We go out And we drive away from the dealership. We get about, you know, 50, 100 feet away. We stop at a stop sign. And then to leave the stop sign, my dad aggressively pushes down the accelerator. And about four seconds later, my dad looks at me and goes, oh yeah, we're buying this. (laughs) I can tell you that a dual motor long range Tesla Model Y goes from zero to 60 in 4.8 seconds. You can know that but there's nothing quite like sitting in the driver's seat and stomping on the accelerator. You know that storms are powerful, but there's nothing like enduring through one. You know that water is powerful, but there's nothing like getting caught up in a crashing wave or in a current. And we can read about the power of God that was at work in Christ's triumphant resurrection and ascension, but knowing that power comes from experiencing it. And it is good news to know that It is a fact that God works the very same power towards us who believe. The idea of experiencing God's power and living by that power is a big part of Paul's own experience. And a theme in his teaching. I had originally planned sort of a whole survey of this idea in Paul's epistles, but I mercifully decided to cut that out. And I'll uh, do with just one example. And I want to kind of speak as a Bible teacher here just for a minute and say that we sometimes make a mistake when we study the Bible and do word studies. This used to be very popular. I don't know how popular it is anymore. We really ought to do concept studies. Because, of course, it's possible for Paul to talk about the same concept in multiple places without using the same word. Word studies are easier than concept studies. But I think concept studies are almost always better than word studies to wit. One of the more famous passages in the New Testament is Philippians 4.13. I'm sure you've heard it, seen it painted on athletes' faces. Uh, You have t-shirts that have it on there. It's a powerful passage, and it's a shame that it is sometimes, or perhaps even often, taken out of context and misused because what Paul is saying there is actually not all that difficult to understand and quite powerful. Earlier in Philippians chapter 4, Paul thanks the Philippians church for their show of support for him while he is in prison. But not to be misunderstood, while he is thankful for their support, even in prison, Paul does not think of himself as being in desperate need. That's because, to quote Paul in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Doesn't that sound like something you'd like to know? Isn't that a secret you'd like to have revealed? Well, it's simple, really. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, Paul doesn't use the word power there, but what else is a person strengthened with? I have a high degree of confidence that when Paul prays that the Ephesians would come to know the power of God towards those who believe, it is this sort of experience, the power of God that viscerally strengthens us to face any and every circumstance when we abide in him. It is that sort of experience that he has in mind. Paul wants those who have faith to be given the gift of experiencing God's power towards them. To draw this all together, I want to conclude by saying that the sort of faith that endures and thrives is faith that grows in the knowledge of God. The sort of faith that endures and thrives is faith that grows in the knowledge of God. And so in conclusion, I want to encourage you to take time to meditate on this. Self-assess. Honestly, take inventory and ask yourself the question, Have I faithfully abided in Christ? If not, then to be really frank, it should come as no surprise that you have not experienced the power of God in your life. Jesus himself says in John 15 that apart from me, you can do nothing. The good news is, as Reed emphasized last week, if you have come to faith in Christ, you have been irrevocably adopted as God's child. If you have not been abiding, there is nothing to keep you from starting today. And for you, my prayer is Paul's prayer. That you you who have faith would be given by God a spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of Him. If when you do this self-assessment, you honestly find that while you have not been perfect, you have abided in Christ not been religious or tried hard to be more moral, but have remained connected to God in relationship, then I encourage you to meditate on the fruit that God has produced in your life. Think back, and I'm sure you will find that God has made you less selfish and more patient, more kind and less quick-tempered. You're not perfect, I'm sure, but I am so convinced of the truth of Jesus' words in John 15 that I am sure you will find this to have been your experience, if it is the case that you have faithfully remained connected to him. And upon reflection, I hope you know more fully the power of God in your life, and as a result, I hope you more consciously cherish that experience, praise the God who has worked his power toward you, and you are motivated to continue to abide. In order to have the sort of faith that endures deconstruction and to reconstruct the faith that we have deconstructed and found wanting, we need to build on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That foundation is good and sure and vital, but foundations are made for building on. And again, to be perfectly clear, this is not something we build with our religion or our moral effort. It's something that God powerfully works within us, a knowledge that we gain through experience of God's power in our life as we abide in Jesus Christ. So I want to conclude this morning by doing the same thing that Paul did. I want to pray for those of us who have faith that God might give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of God. Please pray with me. Father, I am so thankful uh, that by your grace, you have made a way for us to be restored to right relationship with you. I'm thankful that by your grace, you adopt us as your children. And by grace through faith, we find ourselves in right relationship with you. Lord, that is a standing that we do not deserve and we could not merit. And yet, uh, through the work that you've done in Jesus Christ, you've made that possible. But Lord, I, I pray that those of us who, by your grace, have been redeemed to right relationship with you, I pray, Lord, that you would give us knowledge. Knowledge of you. Knowledge of your power. Knowledge of your love for us. Knowledge of the great hope that we have. Lord, forgive us for the many times when We make the mistake of simply paying you no mind, of ignoring you and going about our days as if we had the strength to do it on our own. Draw us into deeper and deeper relationship with you. And Lord, as we abide in you, I pray that we would have the joyful experience of um, having the fruit that you produce in our lives be evident. We love you, Lord, and we pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.